You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 449 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Nudge by Richard H. Thaler and Cass R. Sunstein. But before we talk about Nudge, I'd like to comment briefly on the hiring of 87,000 additional IRS agents. The IRS, with this Inflation Reduction Act, so-called, which is just a totally fallacious thing to call the legislation that the Democrats just barely eked out. In this legislation, they give themselves permission to hire 87,000 Internal Revenue Service agents. Why? Why do you need 87,000 additional IRS agents? Also, too, why has the IRS spent, by some reports, $700,000 on ammunition earlier this year? Why have they been stockpiling ammunition and small arms? And why are they hiring essentially an army of IRS agents. What is going on there? What is in the works? Also, too, you see that news, and then also the same day or within a couple of days, as I'm reading the IRS um, major hiring spree in the news, 30 FBI agents raid former President Donald Trump's Florida home, Mar-a-Lago. 30 FBI agents. This has never happened before to a president of the United States or a former president of the United States. This does resemble what happens in petty third world dictatorships. However, when the administration weaponizes the justice system against political opponents, it is the end, really, of being able to have a representative form of government. The representative form of government, elsewise, is repression. That is to say, we are a repressive and repressed people who lack character. And so, in some measure, the government can refer to our lack of character as they justify heavy-handed tactics towards conservatives and Republicans who they disdain and despise and hate. They can say, ah, they, see, they, they need governed even harder Look how angry they are. Look how bad they are. We should govern them even harder than ever. They obviously need more government. Look at them. Bunch of losers. But the flip side is that a repressive government can still be representative if only for the fact that our low character, our lack of character, prevents us from stopping them, from doing more, saying more, to tell them that's enough. At least 
at least non-compliance should be the rule of the day. But these sorts of things happen because there are always villains. There are always bad men. There are always corrupt men. And then at a certain point, society hits a critical mass of ambivalence towards evil because each man wants to be left alone to his own devices. He cares only about himself. He doesn't care what happens to his neighbor as long as it doesn't happen to me. That's all my business is, he says to himself. So unless we decide that we want our character to be better than it is right now, better than it has been, unfortunately, FBI raids on Republicans will probably escalate into something even worse. Let's just be honest. Also, too, and we won't get into this because we've only got so much time in this episode, but I would like to get into it in a future episode. The judge who <coughs> ordered Greenlit the raid on Donald Trump's home uh, also happened to represent Jeffrey Epstein's employees. So I don't know what we have going on there. I don't know if you have a conflict of interest potentially where somebody who has represented Jeffrey Epstein or Jeffrey Epstein adjacent people and their interests in our legal system also has, uh, for very similar reasons, a bias against Donald Trump. That would seem to be what's being implied there. But all of that is to set the stage <laughs> between former President Trump's home being raided by FBI agents in a kind of shakedown and a, I think, kind of nudge way, uh, or as the authors of this book, Richard H. Thaler and Cass R. Sunstein might say, in a kind of sludge way, uh, I think it being an election year, this is supposed to create a chilling effect. And I think it probably will, to some extent, unless we prove our mettle, we prove our character, and refuse to be intimidated and refuse to be cowed by such measures. But without further ado, let's jump into talking about Nudge by Richard H. Thaler and Cass R. Sunstein. The book summary from Goodreads.com reads as follows. Once again, a New York Times bestseller. First, the original edition, and now the final edition. An essential new edition, revised and updated from cover to cover, is one of the most important books of the last two decades by Nobel Prize winner Richard H. Thaler and Cass R. Sunstein. More than two million copies sold. Since the original publication of Nudge, more than a decade ago, the title has entered the vocabulary of business people, policymakers, engaged citizens, and consumers everywhere. The book has given rise to more than 400 nudge units in governments around the world and countless groups of behavioral scientists in every part of the economy. It has taught us how to use thoughtful choice architecture, a concept the authors invented to help us make better decisions for ourselves, our families, and our society. Now the authors have rewritten the book from cover to cover, making use of their experiences in and out of government over the past dozen years, as well as an explosion of new research in numerous academic disciplines. To commit themselves to never undertaking this daunting task again, they are calling this the final edition. It offers a wealth of new insights for both its avowed fans and newcomers to the field, 
about a wide variety of issues that we face in our daily lives. COVID-19, health, personal finance, retirement savings, credit card debt, home mortgages, medical care, organ donation, climate change, and sludge, paperwork, and other nuisances we don't want and that keep us from getting what we do want, all while honoring one of the cardinal rules of nudging. Make it fun. The author's summary from Goodreads.com for Richard H. Thaler says that he is an American economist who was awarded the 2017 Nobel Prize in Economics. He is the Charles R. Walgreen Distinguished Service Professor of Behavioral Science and Economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, where he is the director of the Center for Decision Research. He is also the co-director with Robert Schiller of the Behavioral Economics Project at the National Bureau of Economic Research and in 2015 was the president of the American Economic Association. He has been published in several prominent journals and is the author of a number of books, including Misbehaving the Making of Behavioral Economics. Cass Robert Sunstein, on the other hand, from Wikipedia, is an American legal scholar known for his studies of constitutional law, administrative law, environmental law, and law and behavioral economics. He is also the New York Times bestselling author of The World According to Star Wars and Nudge. He was the administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the Obama administration from 2009 to 2012. As a professor at the University of Chicago Law School for 27 years, he wrote influential works on regulatory and constitutional law, among other topics. Since leaving the White House, Sunstein has been the Robert Walmsley University Professor at Harvard Law School. In 2014, studies of legal publications found Sunstein to be the most frequently cited American legal scholar by a wide margin. All right, so there you have it. A broad overview. What is the book? Who are the authors? What are we talking about? Let's define some of our terms here. First of all, what is nudge theory? From Wikipedia, nudge theory is a concept in behavioral economics, political theory, and behavioral sciences that proposes positive reinforcement and indirect suggestions as ways to influence the behavior and decision-making of groups or individuals. Nudging contrasts with other ways to achieve compliance, such as education, legislation, or enforcement. The nudge concept was popularized in the 2008 book, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, by behavioral economist Richard Thaler and legal scholar Cass Sunstein, two American scholars at the University of Chicago. It has influenced British and American politicians. Several nudge units exist around the world at the national level, UK, Germany, Japan, and others, as well as the international level, e.g. World Bank, UN, and the European Commission. It is disputed whether nudge theory is a recent novel development in behavioral economics or merely a new term for one of many methods for influencing behavior investigated in the science of behavior analysis. And I was thinking that to myself, by the way, as I was reading this book, I was thinking to myself, this is nothing new. This, yeah, the, you just are calling it something different. That's all. 
you are putting some spin on it, and uh, therefore it's, I guess, exponentially manipulative. But you're being manipulative. <laughs> you're being manipulative even in what you call being manipulative, not admitting that you are, in fact, being manipulative. You're going to say, oh, no, I'm just, I'm just nudging you, right? Anyway, Meyer et al. wrote that after correcting the publication bias found by Mertens et al., there is no evidence that nudging would have any effect. Now, I think nudging probably does have quite an effect, and some of the effect that it has is in the direction that the folks doing the nudging want to get from the folks being nudged, and I think some of the effect they might not be willing to admit to, and we'll get into that. But first, we have some more terms to define here. For one, what is libertarian paternalism? This is a term that they use to describe themselves, the authors of this book. They use the term libertarian paternalists to describe themselves. According to Wikipedia, libertarian paternalism is the idea that it is both possible and legitimate for private and public institutions to affect behavior while also respecting freedom of choice, as well as the implementation of that idea. The term was coined by behavioral economist Richard Thaler and legal scholar Cass Sunstein in a 2003 article in the American Economic Review. The authors further elaborated upon their ideas in a more in-depth article published in the University of Chicago Law Review that same year. They propose that libertarian paternalism is paternalism in the sense that it tries to influence choices in a way that will make choosers better off as judged by themselves. Note and consider the concept paternalism specifically requires a restriction of choice. It is libertarian in the sense that it aims to ensure that people should be free to opt out of specified arrangements if they choose to do so. The possibility to opt out is said to preserve freedom of choice. Thaler and Sunstein published Nudge, a book-length defense of this political doctrine in 2008. Libertarian paternalism is similar to asymmetric paternalism, which refers to policies designed to help people who behave irrationally and so are not advancing their own interests while interfering only minimally with people who behave rationally. Such policies are also asymmetric in the sense that they should be acceptable both to those who believe that people behave rationally and to those who believe that people often behave irrationally. Now we're getting somewhere. I'll just say this, and we'll define one more term before I give you more observations on the book, but I'll just say this for right now. <clears throat> this little piece here is huge. Our attitude towards people who are making decisions that we don't approve of, we don't think those are rational decisions, we don't think those are wise decisions, we don't think those are the right decisions. We see them consistently making decisions that we believe are not rational or not reasonable or not correct or not good for them. And at a certain point, the label sticks. It doesn't work the other way, where we just know inherently that somebody is irrational, and then we know what sense to make of the decisions that we see them making. No, we see the decisions that they're making, we hear the things that they are saying, and it is admittedly a matter of what is your personal philosophy? 
What do you believe about God and man and the nature of reality? It is somewhat subjective. It is somewhat a matter of tastes to some extent. So to say that it really boils down to how we treat people that are rational versus people that are irrational, helping them to make decisions that are good for them. I mean, that's, I, if you say so, right? Like that's the correct response is if you say so, (laughs) you're irrational and I need to help you make the right decision here. Okay. Well, if you say so, I guess it must be one more term. Let's define an important term that is used throughout nudge is this little term called econ. What is an econ? According to Surya Venukopal at streetfins.com, in any introductory economics course, one of the first things you will be told is that in economic theory, people are rational actors or econs. Econs are people who make the optimal choice based on calculated costs and benefits. Simple enough, right? But the problem with making this assumption is that the vast majority of people do not make 100% rational decisions. In fact, most of us are more irrational than we ourselves expect, and this is one of the biggest downfalls of standard economic theory. This notion gave birth to the field known as behavioral economics. All right, so we'll call that enough terms for right now for the purposes of a discussion and review of the book. Here are some observations. For one thing, these guys helped to brainstorm ideas for normalizing, legalizing gay marriage in the first edition of their book. They say that in the final edition of their book, which is what I actually read. I didn't read their first edition. I'm not going to read their first edition and their final edition. I'm just not that motivated. But I read the final, and they refer back to the first edition, and they say they covered that topic, and they have been pleasantly surprised in the intervening years to see that since 2008, governments around the world have passed laws declaring gay marriage legal. And they go through a list, actually, of the countries and what year they legalized gay marriage around the world. And it's pretty astounding, really, when you see a kind of domino effect going across the globe in fairly quick succession, considering how longstanding the view that homosexual couples are not married is and and can't be married is. Again, not to belabor the point, not to get too sidetracked here, because there's a lot going on in this book, and I want to try and stay narrow in our focus for the purposes of this discussion. We will have future discussions referring back to this whole nudge theory thing, rest assured. But marriage definitionally is a man and a woman. It's not two dudes. It's not two chicks. It's not you and your cat. It's not you and your goldfish. It's not... marriage is not just whatever we want it to be. And the folks who said otherwise were lying to us. They were not so much legalizing gay marriage as they were 
uh, abolishing the whole concept and, and specialness and distinction of heterosexual marriage, actual marriage. They were abolishing marriage by saying marriage is this and that and the other thing, very much similar to the question of, oh, what is a woman? I don't know. I'm not a biologist. You're essentially abolishing, for at least the purposes of your handling of people and treating of people, you're abolishing recognition that there's something special about women. There's something distinct about women. Also, also with gay marriage. And with the authors here, Sunstein and Thaler, in their first edition, encouraging people and governments and corporations to nudge their subjects, their employees, their citizens towards what they see as being a beneficial, rational decision to legalize gay marriage. They were encouraging manipulative little suggestions to be made one after another in increasing severity. I would say they wouldn't say severity, but I, you know, the, the double speak here is just, it's hard to keep up with. And I don't want to give them that. Right. I would say what you mean by nudge is manipulation. And even in just this Freddie Sayers at unheard interview with Thaler from last year that I'm listening to right now, you know, I haven't finished it, but I started it this morning and I'm going to finish listening to the interview later today. I hope Thaler admits, yeah, what, you know, what we are doing is manipulating. Yeah, it is manipulative. Yep. But Gay marriage is something they were supportive of. They were nudging their uh, readers and progressive types who were going to take these ideas and run with them and put them into practice at a high level to nudge the world towards affirming gay marriage, so-called, a.k.a., as I would say, an abolition of the idea of marriage because equality, because justice because social justice now they say an interesting thing early on they do not support a position known as presumed consent they support freedom of choice but that's really disingenuous i'm sorry you know when you start introducing these ideas these concepts of choice architecture to the whole way that you market advertise make statements to the public campaign, give speeches, you know, type up the uh, description for a product, how you lay things out. When you start talking about choice architecture, uh, you're going beyond just, uh, you know, kind of ergonomics, right? So I have this great keyboard on my desk right now. I just got a new one because it had been over three years, three, you know, three and a half years since I bought the first one. And I've used it a lot, but it's a great keyboard. It's a little pricey, but I use it a lot. And so it needs to be a good keyboard. It needs to work well. And if it happens to look nice at the same time, well, that helps with morale and it helps with productivity, but it's a Rockat Vulcan uh, 100 or 120. I don't remember which one this is. I've got some of both on our various computers in the house. But it's it's a very pleasant keyboard to use, and 
ideally, I don't even have to think about using it because it just works, right? That was the whole reason I bought a new one is because some of the keys were sticking. And insofar as the keys were sticking and that was distracting and that would cause me to have typos and errors, which I really can't afford to have in part because they slow me down and in part because if I don't catch them in the integration work that I do, it could be really bad. It, it could waste not just time, but it could also cause things to not function properly that I'm supposed to be configuring. You know, if I'm emailing and I get a, a typo in there because I'm in a rush and I don't catch it and I send it out, well, it could cause me to look like an idiot and I don't want to look like an idiot. So yes, I'm going to spend $100 on a keyboard that works correctly, that's been designed very intentionally, that is very ergonomic, that has just the right amount of pressure on the keys that I'm used to, to where I don't even have to think about typing when I type. It just type and it just works, right? That's ergonomics. That is good design. Choice architecture or somebody calling themselves a choice architect is just a manipulative way of saying you're a manipulative person. As far as the purposes of this book are concerned, I I don't think it just has to do with the things they're trying to push people towards in the name of so-called rationality. Uh, I think just in general, even if they were pushing people towards positions that I agree with, I would say this is a really, really dangerous game that you're playing and uh, you're, you're not being genuine. You're not being above board. You're not providing things honest in the sight of all men. Whatever you want to claim, you are deceiving people. You are manipulating people. You're using people. And even if some of them are just kind of sort of peripherally aware that you're doing it, uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's okay that you're doing it to the rest who really you know don't want to believe that you would do that to them. Now, interestingly, too, uh, this book. If you look at the cover of it, the final edition, there's a glowing uh, promotional comment or uh, blurb by Daniel Kahneman, who was co-author, along with Amon Tversky, of another book I read in recent months, The Undoing Project, uh, which basically launched the whole science of behavioral economics. Uh, He's got a high view of this book nudge. But it would seem to me as though that makes sense, right? Uh, Where the Undoing Project highlights the research of Tversky and Kahneman in demonstrating that the majority of people are very, very easily swayed from making the objectively rational decision through what you might say are optical illusions of a kind, of a sort. Uh, These guys... Thaler and Sunstein take those findings from the theoretical to the practical Uh, because most people are irrational. Therefore we're going to cut ourselves a blank check to manipulate them, the majority of them. And the ones who we don't manipulate are either a going to oppose us and we'll then manipulate the majority into thinking that, those folks, the conservatives, uh, are the villains, the bad guys, uh, or we will enlist them in the effort and get them flattered by us saying that they're in the top 1% of actually rational beings or econs as opposed to 
human beings. It is very apparent early on in this book that the authors do not have a high opinion of conservatives or conservatism. They see it as contrary to progress, and they see those who are conservative as opposed to progressive as being irrational. So what you're going to do with the irrational uh, human beings who are conservative is you're going to manipulate them where you can, you're going to bully them where you have to, and you will declare war on them more or less from a propaganda standpoint anywhere they put up enough of a resistance to where they might actually stop you from doing what you're doing and manipulating people. Now, it's interesting, you know, part of their strategy that they proposed on the gay marriage front in the first book was government getting entirely out of marriage. They were opting for civil unions. They thought, hey, if we do, if we just do civil unions, call it that, then we can say any two people can have a civil union. And then we're not using the term marriage that is so offensive to people. So if we take this indirect approach, then we can just bypass all of the roadblocks because we're using the language that historically has been reserved for only a man and a woman. And they say, you know, if we do that, then we, you know, basically we can do an end run. And then they say in the final edition, they say they're pleasantly surprised that most governments around the world just said, ah, screw it. Let's just legalize it. And then they say too, that they were pleasantly surprised that Obama came out in favor of gay marriage. He said he changed his mind. Now it's odd to me that they say there wasn't much of a backlash to the Supreme Court ruling. I think this is indicative of a kind of either willful ignorance uh, or the consequence of living in an echo chamber in academia, in Washington, D.C., in the major big cities on both coasts of the U.S. The fact that you think there wasn't much of a backlash uh, tells me that you really have not been listening. I mean, why would you though, right? Like if you say that the people who disagree with you, the conservatives are inherently irrational and you have a very low opinion of them and they're needing help, they're needing guiding uh, nudges from you, why would you listen over much to what they have to say? It might make you irrational, right? But this is a nudge, right? Like Obama coming out in favor of gay marriage was a nudge and it's interesting that chapter after the one on gay marriage, where they talk about taxes and some examples of what they're prescribing being put into practice, you know, they talk about these gentle little nudges in the UK that were tried to get people to pay their past due tax bills. And a letter was being sent out anyway, so it's not like there's any additional cost. You just need to adjust the wording of the letter that you're sending. So then what they found the nudge unit that was coming up with the letter that would be sent out from the British government, the government of the United Kingdom, to citizens who had an overdue tax bill, was that if you phrased it, that you are in the small minority of people who haven't paid their taxes yet, please kindly pay your taxes. What you would do for one, I mean, in effect, the result would be a, a, a much higher a response rate of people actually doing what the letter was saying, doing what 
the nudge unit was trying to get people to do. But how, right? How was that the letter would imply that everybody else is paying their taxes. You are in the minority. You're in the small minority. And you don't want to be in the small minority because what's wrong with you? Why does everybody else have it figured out that it's time to pay their taxes? So there's a kind of shaming there. And there's also a kind of playing off of fear that people have that they are going to be outside of society. They're going to be uh, essentially outcasts of a sort. If people find out, right, if the government knows and they're sending this to me, what if they send a similar letter to my neighbor saying, this guy, right? Take a look at this guy. Check out this guy. Hasn't paid his taxes. Throw tomatoes. Uh, You know, a very similar thing was being done by Obama when he came out in favor of gay marriage and when a lot of the Democrat apparatus from 2008 to 2016 in the media and in office and in pop culture was trying to convince the United States of America that this is just where it's going, right? This is just what's happening. This is where we're going. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Well, that was all a nudge. And, you know, the countries that legalized gay marriage in the early 2000s and 2010s, then being attributed in their evolution on this to homosexuals coming out of the closet, uh, that serving as a nudge. Well, what then do you make of gay characters showing up on TV shows, showing up in movies, except that each one of those was a nudge, right? And we kind of know that, right? Instinctively, whatever we're going to call it, these guys want to dress it up, make it sound very positive and say, ah, yes, it's it's just a nudge, right? Just just a little bit. Yeah, yeah just, just, just a nudge. But what we would say is, ah, you're pushing for normalization of homosexuality. That's what you're doing. This is propaganda. (laughs) That's another thing to call it. It's interesting too, they say that in 2013, an explicitly homosexual bar association was admitted to argue cases at the U.S. Supreme Court for the first time in American history. 30 plus lawyers who were openly homosexuals were allowed to argue cases in front of the Supreme Court. And they say this too was a nudge and it was designed to get at a statement that had been made by a Supreme Court justice in recent decades who said essentially he didn't know anybody who was a homosexual and why should the Supreme Court rule in favor of a very, very, very tiny fringe minority of the populace over and against the needs or sensibilities of the majority, the vast, vast majority of respectable people in the U.S. So then the activists, the very manipulative community organizing nudge type folks behind the scenes said, ah, okay, we can fix that. Our Supreme Court justices don't know any homosexuals. Let's introduce 30 plus lawyers who are openly homosexual and are even part of a homosexual bar association. Let's introduce them in 2013 to argue cases before the Supreme Court. They don't even have to argue cases directly related. There's just kind of a subliminal messaging that's happening that's getting at that defense or excuse or explanation that the justice gave. He didn't even know any. And then 
lo and behold, just a couple short years later, we get the overturning of the whole institution of marriage that had stood for thousands of years, at least socially, at least in a civic sense, with so-called marriage equality. It's interesting to me that these guys say outright that presenting normalization of acceptance for homosexuals thereafter gay marriage as an up-and-coming trend helped to make it into a self-fulfilling prophecy, even before it was actually a reality. There's another way you can describe what they did here. You can say that they lied to create a false impression. They made it a self-fulfilling prophecy by lying, very much like what the Bolsheviks did in Russia. The Bolsheviks were not the majority, but Bolshevik is literally Russian for the majority. They called themselves the majority until they had bullied enough people by claiming such, and they already had power. And then what are you going to do? Now we've got the power. Good luck trying to get us out of here. This is just like how the Iran nuclear deal was presented to the American people. Ben Rhodes bragged to the media about having created echo chambers in the American media to promote, based on a false impression, that we needed to work with the new administration in Iran because they were moderate. They weren't moderate. The Obama administration knew that Iran was not moderate, but they lied. And then they bragged about lying based on a false claim peddled by friendly people who would just repeat whatever they wanted. And then you get a single journalist here and a single journalist over here at respected institutions to write whatever you tell them to write. And then the rest of the media picks it up and starts parroting it. You create an echo chamber. Indeed, you can call that nudging, but that's just flat out lying and manipulating and propagandizing. Now, they say this interesting thing, and I I made a quick note. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but this is a direct quote from the book. (laughs) They say, People can even nudge themselves, right? So <laughs> they, they talk about people setting alarm clocks, for instance, to make themselves wake up in the morning at a certain time so they're not late, you know, putting little post-it notes here and there. And we're just going to arrange our furniture and arrange our lives in such a way that we help ourselves to do what we want to do even when we're tired or stressed out or feeling really tempted or whatever, right? People can even nudge themselves. Like it's an afterthought that people would control themselves instead of you controlling them. Anyway, I think it's downright creepy when you get to a chapter they wrote on organ donation and exploration of options available to governments regarding the supply and demand of transplantable organs. They kick around a couple of options, presumed consent, informed consent. Do we mandate a choice? You know, you have to choose yes or no. And if you don't choose yes or no, well, we can't give you a driver's license, for instance. They also talk about creating a market for organs. And what does that make you think of? But the CCP. They also talk about some governments around the world having it written into their legal codes that the government owns your body when you die or are about to die, given that organ donation, transplantation, removal, harvesting happens very often when you are not actually totally dead. So there's some creepy, creepy stuff here, which feels like a slippery slope to saying what's the big deal with regards to the CCP and their politically motivated organ harvesting. Also too, speaking of, you know, trying to nudge so-called nudge people 
into agreeing to be organ donors. What happens if and when physicians are mistaken about somebody being brain dead? Doesn't that happen sometimes? And then you start just harvesting their organs, but they're not actually dead. They weren't. They weren't. Now they are. They weren't. What about creating a potential conflict of interest and profit motive? I've got images of discarded, dismembered bodies of aborted babies stuck in my brain from having seen a live action uh, video shared to Facebook earlier this week. The trade in aborted fetal tissue for profit proves concerns about what (laughs) Thaler and Sunstein are proposing here are not theoretical. They're not abstract. These are not just pure imagination worries. Planned Parenthood was selling aborted fetal tissue for research and other things and making a lot of money off of it, not to mention making money off of actually aborting these babies. And you want me to not worry at all? You're going to nudge me into making a choice that you think you think is surely, clearly the most rational with regards to being an organ donor? No. And ew. No. Ew. They discuss a policy in the UK where next of kin needs to be asked permission before harvesting organs and how no surgery can be performed if the family can't be reached. And the authors complain that it's hard to see how lives are saved in this way. Their prerogative seems to be to constantly, consistently here and elsewhere place health and safety and saving lives over and against a decent respect for the opinions of mankind or human dignity. And that really is at the root of what's wrong with this approach to treating people. What information we give them, how we give them that information, what we think is best for them. You could also call it nagging, right? You're just going to nag them in very subliminal ways, very subtle ways, here, there, and everywhere. And and I'm sorry, but how is this just not a dressed-up version of several other books, which the left in the U.S. is fond of using for strategic source material? The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli, Propaganda by Edward Bernays, Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. You've just found a kinder, gentler, happier way of presenting what those guys were talking about doing. Have no real qualms behind the scenes, real politique. I think it would help folks like me to not feel that way, to not feel like this is just one big gotcha mousetrap if not for the constant contempt displayed and articulated for conservatives, if not for censorship online, if not for political targeting of opponents by the IRS, if not for the activism in our public schools with teachers unions, etc., if not for the draconian and incongruous prescriptions of public health officials through COVID. They also talk about <coughs> credit card usage in America And they turn to how to nudge consumers towards making better choices with regards to paying off, utilizing, delaying gratification. But, you know, a funny thing on that, a large part of the reason our balances are so high is because Americans are being nudged from every direction all day, every day to do an endless variety of things impulsively and based on impressions and nudges. See, that's the thing that These two academics, these two theoreticians who are just basking in the glory of decades of being consulted by creatures on the left in politics seem to miss. When you are constantly treating people like they are just irrational, 
humans who need you to manipulate them into making the right decision. And everybody is doing that all the time from every direction about everything that they think or claim to think is for the greater good or in your best interest. If people go along with that, they never develop rationality. They never develop critical thinking skills. They never develop an ability to make decisions. And they never feel like the decisions that they're making are actually their own because you took that from them because everything was engineered and choice architectured to get the outcome you wanted. You know, turn to the chapter, chapter 14 is on saving the planet. And they say, most people around the world are too busy concentrating on now, paying bills, raising families, advancing their careers. Also, it's a problem that there's no villain to focus on. That makes it more of a challenge to mobilize a response. We need to nudge people to get off of greenhouse gases, to utilize less carbon. But then they say this very disturbing thing. They say low-cost nudges are insufficient. Climate change is a global choice architecture problem. And the vast majority of people being regarded as humans as opposed to econs means that they regard individual choices made regarding climate change as irrational and problematic. Oh, I'm sorry. It's irrational and problematic that I'm concentrating on trying to pay all my utilities and my rent and buy groceries and buy fuel and put clothes on my kids back and put them through school. That's irrational. Your idea of rationality seems to be heading in a very, very dark direction. It seems to be heading in the direction of me being unnecessary and the planet as reserved as possible for the folks you regard as econs like yourself being saved from, not for me and my posterity. They talk about the idea of a climate club and they compare it. I was making a note that, boy, it sounds an awful lot like the Paris Climate Accords. They compare it then to the Paris Climate Accords. Yeah, yeah, that was basically the idea. They say each member will be given permission to pollute a certain amount. That's the cap. But really what this is, is it's globalized central planning. You are planning the economy on a global scale by saying you are allowed to quote unquote pollute. You're going to frame it in those terms. But again, this is just part of the endless stream of manipulation and dishonesty. What you really mean is produce. You're given permission to produce a certain amount. We're not talking about pollution. We're talking about production. We're talking about consumption. We're talking about central planning. We're talking about communism, ladies and gentlemen. And then they say this very disturbing, unsettling thing. They say the world is not ready for zero transportation or electricity right away or next year, but that may be necessary at some point. You're talking about a lot of people dying. You realize that, right? You're going to save the planet from us by getting rid of all carbon emissions, by getting rid of our ability to transport ourselves or generate electricity or utilize electricity. You're talking about a lot of people dying, just to be clear. And those people being concerned about that and being familiar with their own individual circumstances are not being irrational to be concerned about that, to be upset about that, to be resistant about that, to be making individual choices that don't align with your idea that they maybe just shouldn't live. Life unworthy of life is really what you're getting down to. And you're saying it in all these positive terms. I don't know if you're just lying to us, but you really know what you think. Or if you're lying to yourself too, but that's really what you're getting at. They don't believe nudging should mean getting people to choose their preferences. But that's just not true. They, they say that. It's just not true. 
especially with climate change, they don't think nudging is enough. They think nudging should be more the exception and the rule should be mandates. It's curious to me that they admit that villains sometimes, often around the world, serve as choice architects. And then they tell, and I kid you not, you can read it for yourself. They tell readers not to worry. They, they bring up objections, criticisms of their book. And they say, well, yeah, some people point out that you know, villains can also pick up what we're saying and do these things and serve as choice architects. And that's not good. But maybe the people who are warning about that should be more worried about climate change. Oh, look, what's that over there? <laughs> oh, yeah, a distraction, a change of subject. They also point out that libertarians criticize them for borrowing their term and coupling it with something they hate, namely paternalism. Go figure. These are double think, double speak type pairings, Thaler, Sunstein. You are not libertarians. You're just paternalists who are very dishonest. <laughs> Maybe with yourselves too, but at least with your readers, at least with the folks you're arguing this stuff to. Essentially, what this all boils down to is advocating so-called choice architecture and nudge units to pursue social justice and climate activism. And what it really boils down to at the end of the day is a brave new world of global communism. You can mock libertarians all you want, Thaler, Sunstein. You can mock libertarians all you want for worrying about slippery slopes. You know, they do. They say, you know, most arguments about slippery slopes in the U.S. have no evidence that there is any such slope as is being worried about a slipping down. They bring up examples of gun control. People say, oh, well, if you are allowed to get this one small gun control measure passed, next thing you know, you're going to be taking away all our guns. Nobody's saying that. Well, yeah, they are, though, actually. They are. They also bring up the Affordable Care Act, which <laughs> that's a, a whole other podcast episode. And then they bring up women's suffrage. They say when women were arguing for the right to vote, it was originally a pushback that this would be a slippery slope towards manly women and effeminate men filling up our society. If women are allowed to vote, we're going to have manly women and effeminate men. <clears throat> that clearly didn't happen. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that was ridiculous. No slippery slope there. Right. They also bring up prohibition. They claim that prohibition was not a slippery slope to banning food and smoking. Yeah, but that's a straw man, though, right? The repeal of prohibition was only after a great deal of loss, pain, repression. And for what? That was the rise of organized crime in the U.S. and also the rise of a gangsterized law enforcement in this country. That it gave itself a blank check to do whatever it took to take out the crime families. Crime families primarily because they were bootlegging, because they were producing, transporting, selling, serving alcohol over and against prohibition. And it eventually got repealed. Yeah. <laughs> and how much damage was done in the meantime? That's the question you should be asking before you just flippantly say, ah, oh, let's let's try that again with some other things and see what happens. You gotta break a few eggs to make an omelet. They also bring up Concerned that people are not being left free to make mistakes, and they heartily agree. They say, oh, yeah, we absolutely believe people should be allowed to make mistakes so long as they're not harming others and as long as they're adequately informed. Yeah, but the devil's in the details on both of those qualifiers. 
For one, the slippery slope is how broadly you define harming others. So for instance, even if I just say, hey, you're not a woman, she's a woman, you were born a dude, you're not a woman. There is this growing acceptance of calling anything that progressives and leftists don't like hurtful, hateful. You're, you're literally killing trans people if you say that this little boy is not a girl. Even though his parents are saying he's a girl, his teachers are saying he's a girl, the mainstream media is saying he's a girl, even Fox News is going to celebrate it. You are harming others when they say you're harming others. And they don't want to hear your argument for why you're not actually harming others because they don't regard you as rational, right? Also, too, the other slippery slope is adequately informed. It's a euphemism for nudging and manipulating. As long as people are adequately informed, just let me talk with them first. Say, buddy, you don't want to do that, do you? Then this and this and this would happen, and then this and this and this won't happen. And yeah, I mean, I. It's your choice, really. I mean, you could do whatever you want, but I'm just telling you, you need to be adequately informed. No, you're talking manipulation. You're talking more deceiving and more lying to people. Also, as an aside, it is interesting to me. Both of these guys, they say, ah, we're, we're teachers by profession. And they address the concern that nudges are manipulative. They say, oh, no, they're not, usually. Ah, is that true? I don't think that's true. They say, oh, but it's for a good cause, right? You got to help the dum-dums who make up 99% of humanity to function. They say they're against subliminal messaging, but are they though? I mean, definitionally, I looked it up. What is a subliminal message? Subliminal messages are visual or auditory stimuli that the conscious mind cannot perceive, often inserted into other media such as TV commercials or songs. This kind of messaging can be used to strengthen or heighten the persuasiveness of advertisements, or to convey an altogether different message entirely. I think that what they are describing is subliminal messaging for the majority of people who are just busy and they don't want to believe that their own government, their employers, are treating them this way, are abusing them this way. You know, they've they've talked themselves into believing that they're in the 1% and all the rest y'all are irrational. And as long as they form this in-group at the top to say, ah, we're very rational and these other dum-dums, they need us to make their decisions for them. When you realize what they're doing to you, you should be offended. You should be very offended because they've been convincing you of things that they think are in your self-interest, even though self-interest for you is so broadly defined that at the end of the day, if they feel like they could win the war against climate change by taking away your vehicle by cutting off the power to your house, by making you stay home through COVID, by causing you to lose your job, by allowing your region's source of water and food to be no more because climate change, you're supposed to just buy that. No, no way. That's not acceptable. I think the solution here is not more nudges. I think the solution is for manipulative folks to stop manipulating the nudged enough Nudged enough already. I, I think we need a new political movement. We'll call it the knee party. It'll be like the tea party, but we'll counter the nudges instead of taxes and regulation. I, we'll probably find if we're able to stop the, the nudging, so-called, that we will also see taxes and regulations go down because it's the same crowd. 
we'll call ourselves the Knights Who Say Knee. How's that? It's a Monty Python and the Holy Grail reference, by the way. Just so you know. That's all the time I've got, though. That's all I've got for this. Uh, it was a super creepy book. I found it to be super creepy. It is concerning, especially when you consider the raid on Donald Trump's house, former president Donald Trump's Florida home, Mar-a-Lago. It's super concerning when you consider that the IRS is hiring 87,000 additional agents. I believe that will nearly double the size of the agency. And they are also stockpiling small arms and ammunition. What's up with that? It's very, very concerning that we have people like this in our government. And we have since Obama, at least. I think for much longer, but at least these guys, one of them literally was in the Obama administration. We need to know what is being done to us, what is being done in our name. In vain is a net cast in the sight of any bird. Let those who have eyes to see and ears to hear see and hear. I'll leave you with a quote. One last little quote here. So said Mr. Andrews, and so I say, dear boys, and so says he who has the charge of you to you. Therefore, I beg all good boys among you to think over the story and settle in their own minds whether they will be eyes or no eyes, whether they will, as they grow up, look and see for themselves and what happens, or whether they will let other people look for them or pretend to look and dupe them and lead them about the blind leading the blind till both fall into the ditch. And I say good boys, not merely clever boys or prudent boys, because using your eyes or not using them is a question of doing right or doing wrong. God has given you eyes. It is your duty to God to use them. That is from Madam Howe and Lady Why by Charles Kingsley. The preface, one of my wife's favorite Ambleside online readings for our kids' homeschool curriculum. And this is why we homeschool, by the way. (laughs) That's all the time I've got, though. I gotta run. It is a Wednesday, which means it is my last day on for this hitch. Rest assured, I will be talking more about this in future episodes. In the meantime, I would encourage you to do a little bit of digging on your own. It's not hard to find the two authors of this book, Nudge, interviewing with big tech giants, social media companies, mainstream media, working in government, working with government. Be aware. Heads up. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.